Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. We are so happy to have you here. Today, you're going to be hearing a conversation that I had with Reginald Green, um, an incredibly multifaceted human being who's been everything from an educator to a lawyer and everywhere in between. Um, We had an incredible conversation about learning by teaching and making education a respected uh, field of study and the importance of Black male educators. And so I think this conversation really drives home a lot of what it is that we're trying to do here at Black on Black Education. And I think everyone who listens is going to get a really, really amazing perspective. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 42 minutes. Thank you. See you next time. Hello, welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. I am here with Mr. Reginald Green, and we are going to have an awesome conversation about his trajectory in life and um, what it has to do with education. So please let my listeners know who you are and Um, a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, my name is Reginald Green. I was not born or raised in New York. I was born and raised in Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, a long way away from here. And one of the funny things that I learned as I made my travels through life, living in Miami, D.C., Chicago, L.A., New York, people always ask me, how did you get here? <laughs> it's, it's a weird thing. Like, how did you get here? Like, I like was born and raised in Kentucky yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so I always start there. Like, I'm from Paducah, Kentucky. But it took me a while to get to New York. I uh, started out uh, at Simons Rock College of Bard which is a liberal arts institution made for the younger scholar. I believe the motto was, if Alexander the Great could take over the world by 19, then you can certainly graduate from college. Mm. So that's how that program was set up. It was really based originally for for young women, uh, mainly white women because it was the 50s, but women who weren't allowed to go to college. So it was their Mm -hmm. way to bypass that by going, getting their AA and then slipping into college. But in the 90s and into 2000, when my sister went, it was really for people who were kind of outcasts mm. in, in education. And that, I start there because that is how I got involved in education. You know, I was a loner kid. My parents got divorced when I was like six. And then my whole schooling changed mm. because one of the things that happens to kids who are transient is when you move, your friends move, your teachers move, your life changes. And for little kids, that is it. School is kind of your social bubble. And mom was destroyed. So by the time I got to middle school, high school, I was like on the other side of things. I was mm. bullied when I was in middle school, and I was a, a loner in, in high school. So I had a chance to, to leave Paducah and go to the Berkshires in mm. Western Massachusetts and start college early. I took it. Um, and then from there, I ended up transferring into University of Chicago because that was my way to mainstream. Mm. I didn't want to be around a bunch of 15, 16-year-old smart kids. I wanted to be with people who were in college legitimately. <laughs> and I did two years, finished, got my BA, and then went to Teach for America because of that experience. And it was a non-conventional way for a young African-American from somewhere as rural as Paducah, Kentucky, to actually get into the world. And it was through the teachers and the experience I had in education. And then I just stayed. I was mm-hmm. supposed to be a lawyer. I thought I was going to go to law school right out of uh, Chicago or maybe right after Teach for America, but instead I stayed in education, mm-hmm. went to New York to see if I could be the best, make it there, you can make it anywhere, in the charter reform movement, working in KIPP schools. Uh, did that until uh, about 2011 when I was dispatched out to L.A. to help out with one of the schools that was struggling there. Came in as an administrator on the spot, like got the school stabilized, and then had opened my own uh, charter middle school, KIPP school out in L.A., outside of Watts, which is crazy. 
And uh, after starting the school, I left it. I was pretty much done. It had been 10 years of education, hitting every ceiling. But I stayed in education for another year before going to law school. I was a superintendent uh, with a cluster of charter schools called Para Los Niños. Incredible program out in downtown L.A. Uh, started with just a daycare for undocumented children. Mm. And over the years became a school and then two schools and then wraparound services and I came in as the superintendent that year to help them turn it from kind of a hodgepodge organization providing wraparound services to an educational institution with wraparound services. Mm -hmm. And we were able to do that before I went to law school, deferred a year. And then I went to Cardozo, Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, Yeshiva University's law school. Though it is uh, secular, it is obviously influenced by the the Judaic uh, tradition and I learned how to really analyze text and the law in a very different way, right? It was all about social justice because mm-hmm. that is a part of the Torah. And it's part of kind of yeshiva's mission. So it was awesome to be at that school and learn from so many great people. In that process, though, I was able to do big law stuff and alternative dispute resolution, and work in defense clinic, and then found myself enjoying litigation and ended up at the Manhattan DA's mm-hmm. office. And that was... That's where I'm at today, and that's how my journey in education is built. Apparently, I go to school a lot, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I even go when I'm almost 30, going, going to law school. So uh, that's, how, that's how I got here. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the part about being a transient student because people forget that a lot. I went to seven different schools in seven mm-hmm. different years. Um, my, my experience was a little bit different in the well, a lot of bit different is that like I always strive to be the most popular kid in school. So I came in first day and I did something outlandish so that people were like, who's that girl? And then by the second month, I was I was it. And so school was always where I wanted to be because home was not it. And um, so education for me, my passion comes from a space of like, it was the only space where I was able to be who I was authentically mm-hmm. outside of like what was going on at home. But that's, I think that's a key piece of education that gets missed a lot that like we're talking about education reform, but we, you can reform a school to be incredible. If there's a kid that went to five different schools, what does that look like for them? Um, and so that, that buildup was awesome that you got into everything that you've kind of done because you've had diverse experience. You're the epitome of like, education does not go straight, does not go in a straight line, life does not go in a straight line. And so how has being in all these diverse experiences sort of like armed you with the knowledge uh, for you to like continually fight for a more equitable society? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons that I ended up in in the kind of hodgepodge journey myself was because I did not find someone in schools that fit um, kind of my way of looking at the world. Mm. I didn't have a, a black man as a teacher mm-hmm. until my jazz class I took as an elective my senior, we'll call it fourth year in Chicago, my senior year in college. And, and, I, and I can say Mr. Duncan, our basketball coach who assisted with PE, was my teacher. Mm-hmm. I could say that. But I was not a great athlete, so I didn't mm-hmm. feel like he was teaching me very much. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in terms of like a core subject, I didn't have that. And I love poetry. Mm-hmm. I love writing poetry and music. And I didn't see any people like that mm-hmm. in my society or in my world except for on TV. Mm-hmm. Right? And those people all lived in New York. Those people were highly educated. Or they lived in L.A. or whatever. And they, and they also had this similar track of people thinking that they didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And so that, that really, for me, 
is what led me to education. What kept me in it was how it changes your life. You know, just the perspective at the, at the time, 20 year old, um, thinking that I was the smartest person in the world and having a hard time explaining what a verb is to a mm-hmm. fifth grader. You know, that will humble you. But it also made me clear how little I know and how much more I'm learning every day just by teaching. So it, it became more of a mission for me to teach. It was like, you get better as a person. This will set you up to do other great things. And each year I would evaluate, am I ready to go and do that, quote, great thing? Mm. And each year I would be like, no, this is a great thing. And I wanted to change education to be something that was respected, Mm. where people would look at a teacher like they look at a lawyer, look at a teacher like they look at a doctor, because the skills and services that are provided are similar. Um, It takes a long time to learn Uh, You need to do some kind of apprenticeship to be a teacher. You have to have life experience yourself to inform the types of decisions you make. And you don't see that kind of attention to detail when it comes to teachers or how people look at teachers. Mm -hmm. But yet everybody has an experience, good or bad, of a teacher that shaped their lives. Absolutely. So I think for me, this journey is was built on education is a place you can make the biggest impact on yourself. I thought that I really felt like no matter what job I did, if I was a teacher first, I would always be able to teach other people things. I would always be able to listen. I would always be able to break difficult things, concepts down to anybody, and I would always feel comfortable around people. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if you wanted to get to justice and equity, you better be able to do those things if you want to be an activist or whatever I thought I wanted to be. I thought I just wanted to be the dude from Love Jones. I think that's... I think that was it. I just wanted to do that. But, you know, if I wanted to shoot a little bit higher and maybe run a nonprofit or be out in the streets, you know, mm-hmm. be a part of Black Lives Matter, something like that, then I felt like I needed to have those skills. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that's a great segue into my next question of, like, I'm 22. I graduate in three months. I'm, like, looking at this thing called life. Like, yeah. what is happening and why aren't all the pieces falling perfectly in line in the way that like my 15 year old self 16 year old self 20 year old self said that they would and um, I think there's a lot of students in my position who are figuring things out and like what would you say to those people what would you say to the people who are like I need everything to be in a straight line or it's going to go perfect Um, yeah what advice do you have for them Uh, it's twofold one I I think it's important to identify what you enjoy doing mm-hmm. and then to identify what you're scared of doing or what you think you might not be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're 22, you have some time where you can just kind of mess up, right? Like your career can go left, you can get in trouble at work, you can get fired. I mean, you can do all kinds of things because everybody will forget after a few years, but you can't get that time back. Mm-hmm. So if there's if you're worried about being a public speaker, but you never really put yourself out there, I would suggest putting yourself out there right out. You know, put yourself in that position. If you wanted to travel all over or you wanted to go a lot of different places, live a lot of different places, do it now. Right? Like go ahead and take a fellowship, a one or two year short term thing, so that it makes you move to another city, makes you move to another location. Um, but if you also want something. Whatever that one is, it has to be present in whatever job you're doing, mm-hmm. even if it's also bound by things you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Right? So like, if you're scared of leaving New York, for instance, <laughs> and you also want to be involved in music, then let's try to find a fellowship on the other side of the country that involves you doing music. Mm-hmm. 
right? That would be my suggestion. It is risky. It is out there, but I think that's the best way to do it. Because if I had done the traditional thing, I would have just gone to law school mm -hmm. right out of Chicago. I would not have gone to Teach for America. But I got inspired by Sue Duncan at the Sue Duncan Children's Center in Chicago. And she told me, you know, you have two years, you're 19, why not? I mean, what, what's the worst that could happen? You don't like teaching. Yeah. And I was like, that's true. And then 10 years later, like, I'm still doing it. So that's that would be my advice. All right. And I, and I hope everyone's listening to it because it's helping me over here. So I'm sure it'll be helping some other folks. And so switching gears a little bit, um, in the conversations that we've had before actually sitting down uh, for, for the podcast, um, we talked a little bit about your, I think, entrenched in everything that you are is learning and continually learning and that life of learning. And so you mentioned um, a book club that you're a part of. And so I kind of just wanted to, to throw this in here as like education happens in, in several different ways. And so kind of what the book club has done for you, uh, things that you guys have read thus far, just kind of adding to people that there are ways to learn outside of the schooling system, the college system. The, uh, yeah. uh, we, so we came up with a, a group uh, to read and we called it Black People Read which was done through a survey. So we did it all <laughs> democratically. We all got on the survey and was like, what are we going to name it? One of the questions, what are we going to name it? People had to suggest the books they wanted to read. So it was all data-driven. Like, everything was put down. We voted on the name. We came up with BPR, because it's like NPR, so black people read. <laughs> and it's black people read not only that we read stuff that helps us, but we read stuff that helps us read. Uh, if people come in correct, when people want to talk about issues related to race or want to talk about issues related to socioeconomic status in class, we wanted to have books, data, and information to rebut that mm. on the spot. But no, actually, I'm reading this, and what you just said is incorrect. Incorrect. It's yeah. not true. So that was the, that was a reason for doing it. Mm. How many books did we actually get to? I mean, you know, it's tough. Our founder uh, passed away, mm. you know, tragically at a very young age from like Graves disease. And so that kind of put us, stopped us a bit. Yeah. But we did end up reading Systems Thinking, uh, The Primer uh, by Danella Meadows. That was awesome. That was kind of, we wanted to have a book that stabilized our thinking. And we said, this is all systematic racism and injustice in our country, in America at least. And certainly, if you look at it from a Pan-African standpoint, mm -hmm. in nations that have been colonized, this is systematic. It's not just one bad actor. It's a whole set of practices. That book gave us the reasoning behind every system. Mm. It actually discusses every single system. I think everybody should read that book. It's dense. It's complicated. That's why you do it in a group. And that's why we decided because we don't have to read the whole book by ourselves. Yeah. You have different chapters. And we had uh, protocols, mm -hmm. which, you know, people are interested. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. <laughs> and show you how to do it. But it, it allowed us to do these seminar-type mm. formats where each person took a chapter and had to explain it to the group. That's great. And then we go back and forth to make sure that everybody left each chapter understanding it. Then we moved on to The Loneliness of the Black Republican. I believe that's the name of it, Loneliness of the Black Republican. And it talked about the history of black Republicans mm -hmm. since, uh, I guess, Reconstruction. Yeah. Right? Uh, that, was, that was cool. And then we, we just finished White Fragility uh, by uh, Robin D'Angelo. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. And, so, and then I think it's just like... 
I'm in school, so that's like what we do. But you don't, no one has to do that. No. You guys didn't have to do that. And so it, it's incredible to know. I was talking to somebody last night and I was basically saying what I'm trying to do with Black on Black Education, what I want to do as an educator is we can make a curriculum and tell teachers what they need to teach kids. But kids have Google. Like I'm at the point where it's like, we need to teach kids how to love to learn. Mm-hmm. Because then when they are 40 and they're like, I want a career change, it's not like, well, I don't know how to do that, so I can't. It's, I love to learn, so let me go learn how to do that thing. Like, I really think that that love to learning is the key piece. And now, of course, like, should we know how to do two plus two? Absolutely. Should we know how to read? Absolutely. Like, there are core principles that we need. But, like, how many people are using Pythagorean theorem? So, like, are we using our space in the schooling system effectively to, to churn out people who are willing to do the work. Well, when when you say, like, black folks in general, what space do we have to do that? I mean, just just in terms of racial anxiety, Mm -hmm. uh, I took uh, a race course in law school, which Mm -hmm. is really interesting, critical race theory, and talking about the impact of racial anxiety and how that lowers attention spans, lowers stamina, Mm -hmm. Uh, when you live in poverty, which we know is tied to what happens to black folks in America, poverty is part and parcel of racism and capitalism. When you live in that state, it's very difficult to think long term mm-hmm. about your learning. And, you know, you hear the stories about back in my day, my mama wouldn't let me do this. That, that's true. Mm-hmm. You need a parent that is on you, but that parent needs space to do that. And I just... I think it's very difficult when you're you're trying to survive I, 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 to prioritize reading yeah. or taking time for yourself to think of self-care as more than a massage or a spa, mm. but actually it's a book and, you know, I, and a I, conversation. I, I think that that's huge because there's a lot of people I went to high school with who I've had conversations with about these sorts of things. I went to a predominantly white high school and who their, their ideology around it is, well, why don't they just go to the library? And you're like... Hmm. If I was stopped and frisked twice, give or take, this month, um, I went to school where a teacher told me I'm mm. never going to be anything. So you know, why should I try? I failed four tests this semester, and I'm probably going to have to repeat the grade. Please explain to me how you're going to go tell that person. Maybe just go to the library. Like, there's so much more to it than that. And like, I I try really hard not to simplify anything. Um, but I think like for me there. And, I, and again, I can only speak from my standpoint, but had I not fell in love with learning in school and that space of education at an extraordinarily young age, I have no idea, like, the person that I would be. And so I think, like, like key to, like, we can't control what's happening outside of kids' lives outside of school as an educator. Can't control it. But you can make it a space that they're happy to come to. You can make it a space where they're happy to, oh my gosh, I read this thing last night, in, or I read this thing in class, because how many students are really having the time and the energy at home to get their homework done and make sure that they have access to a quiet space for them to, and so, like, for students to really be, and, I, and I've seen it, I've seen students who have spent year, years in jail come back and looking at me like, why do you, what do you think that this, like, I'm not, I don't care. Mm-hmm. and leave knowing them three months like oh I, I picked up this book from the, you bought a book who like what right. you read the new the free newspaper that I suggested you read like wait what and it literally comes from like they're excited we can make students excited it's hard to fix all that other stuff all them systems it's gonna take a whole lot of time yeah. to fix that but it's not as hard to make somebody feel worth something 
Yeah, I think we have to have to be more think non-traditionally. Mm -hmm. I learned that as an educator, when standardized tests are, are kind of how we look at learning and we value people based on a number and a score as opposed to the multiple intelligences and the ways that they're expressed. Mm -hmm. I think that we have a great opportunity here in the 21st century with technology. And I saw that firsthand when we went from chalkboard to whiteboard to smart board and like mm -hmm four years mm. and so just like the ability as a teacher to maintain children's uh, attention mm -hmm. and then to have them interact with material mm -hmm. I just saw that the results were better not on a standardized test but they were actually I was pretty good on <laughs> getting the kids on standardized tests but not just in the standardized test it was also in their enjoyment mm. um, I also think that changing how we look at standards in education from just the academic standpoint to thinking more socially mm. culturally um, social intelligence, and then also evaluating teachers based on their own ability to show social intelligence. Mm. I think a lot of focus is on children and their parents and what happens outside of school, which, yes, is an uh, impacting factor. But when they get to school, how do we address those issues that are happening outside the mm -hmm. home? Do we call ACS as mandated reporters, as teachers may have to do? Mm -hmm. Or do we do more kind of investigative work to find out what's going on and offer services up front before we get to, okay, now someone's got a knot on their head and we have to call ACS. Maybe if we had intervened when they were yelling at each other two, not two weeks beforehand, we could have prevented this family being broken apart mm -hmm. at least that day. Mm -hmm. um, if we focus in on what, what are the needs for the parents, do these parents need jobs? What connections do our school board have with mm. this contractor? I just think that schools can do a lot more okay. to be involved in the social fabric mm -hmm. that that child comes from. Um, and I, I mean, it brings me just back to like what our society prioritizes. We prioritize spending 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 dollars a year per inmate. Per inmate. But in New York City, we're given a thousand, two, almost two, two thousand, three thousand dollars per student. What? I mean, numbers are a bit better in New York State. You know, it's, yeah, it's definitely around absolutely. ten thousand per student. And it's and I'm my you know I I, brain I, I, is I just have I have to, but yes. it's but that's not enough. And so like it's it's actually it should be flipped, right? If absolutely. there's ten thousand spent on an inmate, it should be seventy thousand spent on a student because that's a future earning potential. There's a lot that goes into it, absolutely. while jail like lowers earning potential. So just in terms of like economics, absolutely. if we want to make this about turning people into a number, which is what capitalism definitely helps us do, <laughs> then the cost-benefit analysis would say put more and invest in children than adults who've already made poor decisions. Mm -hmm. This is something I see, you know, just in the criminal justice world, people, the schism between talking about giving people education while they're in college, uh, while they're in prison, yeah. versus giving money to victims of criminal activity. It's so hard to get people on the same page about it because folks go, how could I give someone money when they kill someone mm -hmm. to get an education that my kids can't afford because mm -hmm. I have to pay the tuition mm -hmm. and we're law-abiding citizens. Mm -hmm. Flip side, there's a victim who also once was a defendant, mm -hmm. right? If they had maybe gotten education, they'd be in a better position once they became a victim to get out of it, but they don't have enough money. They have these health issues from whatever victimization that happened to them and they can't get, up, get a better lot in life because they were a defendant. They mm -hmm. might have gotten a felony. So there, we got to start looking at this in a big picture. We have to stop looking at it in silos. Like $10,000 goes to education. 
ten thousand dollars go to criminal justice. Mm-hmm. They all they money all, mingles. It all impacts each other. And that's why when it's like we don't have the money for that, we have the money for that. We have the money for that. If it was the incentive, or if the incent- if the incentive was there, or if that was what was being prioritized. So what do you think uh, as twenty two year old mm-hmm. uh, Z ish? Right. Yes, Z-ish. Z-ish. What, <laughs> what do you think is the lever? Um, what, what, what is it that's going to change the incentive? Mm. Is it global climate change? Is it, is it a war? Like, what is it going to be that changes our priority? Uh, we have to make them change it. I really, like, I think that that's it. I think it's like, we have to make them change it. It's, it's not saying, okay, Bernie Sanders is our savior. No, I'm my savior. Who is it them? Um, that's a because you never no no because you never know who the them is. It, it because it's it, we don't know who the gatekeepers to things are. A lot of, most people don't know what the gatekeepers to things are. Um, but my thing is people who are willing and okay with with the status quo. That's who mm-hmm. they are. It's who for me going to Valhalla High School, getting the education I got. I am will never never not be grateful. But I'm not okay with the fact that all those parents could send their kid to the house and knowing that they have that option and that they don't care that the students at Mount Vernon do not have anywhere near the access to, to education as they do. If you want your kids to do better, those kids have to do better also. Mm-hmm. And like, so any, like, and I'm not, I'm not like ripping anyone down for not being down for the cause. My thing is, if we want the society that the United States says that it's supposed to be, then we have to make it. And that's just, society isn't just what it is. It is what we make it. And so I think as people start to understand that we have to organize, we have to mess with their money, we have to do those things. If you don't do those things, we are not going to see the change, the sorts of changes that we want to see. It's going to be hard work and it's going to take a long time and I'm probably not going to see the world that I want to see in my lifetime. But I want to set up more students to be prepared to make that world than the, than the people in my generation who are prepared. Yeah. Do you see, do you, I mean, I hear you. It's actually a really good way to look at it. You want to be the change you want to see in the world. I'm just finding that it's difficult to change people's mindset on on crime, on punishment, mm-hmm. on education, there seems to be this meritocracy idea that mm-hmm. people are where they are because they worked hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that concept itself has to change. Absolutely. That a standardized test of 1550 is the product of hard work. Yeah. Um, in some cases, sure, I'm mm-hmm. sure that is, but most of the time it's just if an I didn't get SAT of press, if I didn't get, It is. It's, it's about resources. It's about things that the individual more times than not can't control. Yeah, I can pick up the GRE. I took the GRE this summer. I picked up a GRE book. Almost nothing I did in that book was as helpful as having access to a to a tutor. Mm-hmm. Like th- it was invaluable having access to a but tutor. But the tutor is substantially more expensive. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And so I just I, I do think that you ha- how do you change people in a capitalist the capitalist nation, right? <laughs> created and founded on capitalism and exploitation. Slavery was the basis of the country's economy. All of it. How do you change a mindset of, I get mine? Like, that, that's America. You got to get mm-hmm. yours. You know, we, we are climbing up the ladder as an immigrant. You come here, like, you ain't got time to, to focus on anybody else. Mm-hmm. You're going to do whatever you can for your kid to go to college and then their kid to go to college. And, 
that's the American dream is actually mm-hmm. just climbing on top of other people uh, to get to where you want to be. I think I think the biggest thing is we talked about it before we started is framing and the idea that it'll be easier for you to get yours if other people have theirs. So if people have more money to spend on whatever you're making or whatever product. Well, then, so you can get more of yours if the bottom rung of people are getting more of theirs. And so as as problematic as that idea is of, like, we have to have a hierarchy, um, mm. I, that idea, but we all, we have to understand that there, there has to be ways in order to, because for me, it's, if I didn't, if I didn't know that there was a James Baldwin, I don't know if I would have strived for what I, if I didn't know there was a W.E.B. Du Bois. So there has to be some sort of something to to reach to. I don't think everyone needs to be the same and on the same level and get the same thing. And so it's kind of like, I, I think you frame it around, if we invest in this thing, it does better for everybody. And then show them exactly how that works. Because there are, there are it, it does work. If, these, if this group of people makes more money, then... Yeah, Bloomberg got more money in his pocket. He does. And am, am I hurt? If I can take, if I can pay, if I have four kids and I can have a home for those four kids and I can have a, a car to get them back and forth from school and I can send all four of them to college, I don't care how much money Bloomberg has. I don't. Because I have enough to do what I need for my family. I don't need a Gucci belt. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know? So it, I don't frame mine around, I'm upset that he has a billion dollars. I just need, give me like a hundred. I'd be all right. Allow you to make it. Right? Yeah. Like, allow like, me let to me to make my me destiny. Means. But the problem is that people can't make their own destiny right now. A lot of people can't. We have the outliers who make it out. Great. I'm so happy for those people. But the vast majority of the people in those in these in these communities that we was talking about, in these communities of color, in these low income communities, uh, in these rural communities, are not making it out. Right. And and when they do make it out, they're in debt, mm-hmm. um, and, and they have no safety back. net, and, and they're, they're not, not coming back. Because I'm not going back to Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not going because there's not enough industry there for me to go with all this debt and education that I've gotten. It's not the case. But this is what black on black education hopefully will ameliorate. We have to start teaching each other what we've learned in our journey, and that's. Part of why I didn't want to be in one place for too long. I mm. wanted to always be versatile so that I could take these lessons and apply them to other areas. Mm. So when I was in education, I went up the ladder of charter schools and I got to a certain place, but I kept finding it was always a white man, um, always a lawyer, always a white woman, always a lawyer, um, <laughs> who was making a decision about what, where the money was going to go or mm-hmm. how the schools were going to be funded. It's in 501c3 world. And I kept going, well, where are the black women at making the decisions? Where are the people, the Latinx community making the decision? Where are the people that have meager beginnings like I did, who were once living in uh, housing, you know, uh, public housing? Like, where, where are those people in the positions to make these decisions? And what am I talking about, Fortune 500 companies? I'm talking about 501c3, mm-hmm. right? So that's where people should be thriving who come from meager beginnings and, and different backgrounds. And yet, over and over. It were, there were people who were making decisions about black and brown folks who never lived with them, had never been in that community, or folks who were making decisions about education and only worked in business. Mm-hmm. And that's what made me leave education and go to, to the law. It was like, I want to learn the language of power. Mm. I want to understand why is it that these laws are made the way they are. 
and how do we use those laws and that way of thinking to help all people who are disadvantaged, particularly African Americans, those are the people that I am most aligned to. Mm-hmm. How do I help my folks understand how to change the system? Mm. And so it's not just me or you. It's like all of us doing our passion. So you know that's what I think this is really all about. That's why I really um, wanted to be a part of this, to add to a collective. If each of us follows our passion, mm-hmm. we will add to the collective. Absolutely. Everybody's not supposed to be a soldier on the front lines. Everybody's not supposed to be an entertainer, and everybody's not supposed to be a polemic or a writer. We all have to be doing these things Absolutely. and allow young children to have the space to dream big and so that they can do it. options. Yeah. How many, I don't, like, I don't know how many black and brown kids or people who I've talked to who are like, yeah, basketball, that's it. And you're like, basketball's great. I don't want you to stop loving basketball. But you could play basketball at New York Sports Club after your job in the law office. Like, (laughs) like we need, like, I need us to want more. And I think the problem is, is that in, in, in history, we say Martin Luther King, Ooh, Martin Luther King, what was his job? Nobody's nobody. So you can think he was great, but I can't tangibly say, Oh, I want to do what he did. Yes. We we see if they talk about Malcolm X, what was his job? What like what was that? All like these these people, the the few black folks that they tell black children about or any children about for that for that matter. Oh, okay, maybe maybe Madam C J Walker. I I can, but you know like what was this person's? How do I get there? There is no. <laughs> there is no tangible like learning systems around that, and so that is exactly what we want to do. Is like there are people who look like you who are doing these things and who are in these spaces and who are fighting for you, and so we're fighting for you so that one day you're fighting for yourself, and then and then on and then on right. and then on. Pay it forward. Exactly. I mean, you know, there, I think one of the things that you hit on is about whether. We have models mm-hmm. of that in our communities. I think this podcasting, social media, we have a lot of tools that aren't necessarily being used to educate. And, and it's hard to say that that's anybody's fault. I mean, there is a dearth of knowledge because there's too much out there and mm-hmm. not all of it can be fact-checked. Mm-hmm. So people are skeptical of social media and other things as they should be because we do not have an office that checks it. We mm-hmm. don't have regulations mm-hmm. around it. But this is where I think we're going to see the most traction in the, in the 21st century. Mm. How to get people on that kind of Swiss Beats uh, rhetoric. He always talks on his Instagram, we don't need to go to college to get the knowledge. You just need the knowledge, Absolutely. right? So he does a six-week program at Harvard. Mm. He's like, that's all I needed. I didn't need to pay $175,000. I just needed six weeks. Yeah. More of those kind of training models for folks to get a taste of something without having to do it. Absolutely. We're now talking about technical schools. I know Andrew Yang talks a lot about that. And I know the history of technical schools and I know how it's racist. Yes, we ended them <laughs> in the 90s. Like pretty much ended technical vocational schools. Mm-hmm. But vocation has changed. It's not a menial labor job anymore. Vocation is a podcast or being a tech for a podcast vocational jobs are being a social media influencer a vocational job is someone who does copy for an ad agency now because it's so uh, ubiquitous to do that that you don't need a specialized person for it you just need people to do it that's where we're at we're in the 21st century we need people to be 
uh, collaborators. Mm. So that's the vocation. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have vocational schools now that are focused solely on social networking, uh, collaboration, project management? That's what it should be. Um, I think that, that we have a long way to go, but we're going to make those inroads in this, in this century. Absolutely. I completely agree. There, I had like a bunch of other questions, but within this conversation, as, as it usually happens, uh, they pretty much got answered. And so we're kind of moving toward the end. But um, the first time I met you, you said, if you don't try, you don't receive your drive to win and our program to fail. And like you said it, and I was like, Like, it was like three whole seconds of just like, wow, okay. And so I feel like I need you to explain to folks what that means for you and why it was necessary for you to kind of like, in a space for them, for the most part, there was a lot of people of color in that room. Like, why was it necessary to partake that knowledge onto folks? Look, you know, being a teacher is the hardest job that I have done emotionally because every single day, you're challenged in a way you can't know until you get really good at it, and even mm. then you're just surprised when you learn something new. Mm. Uh, it's about trial and error. My life has been about trial and error. <laughs> I've, I've, I wanted to put myself in difficult positions. I wanted to see how far I could go. But by trying, I learned that there are things I'm just not good at. And I, and I don't know how to explain it to someone to learn full on. Like, I'm not good at this thing, but I can get better. That creates this drive that there, there means there's nothing that I can't do. Mm. Now that's a, I'm not saying I'm going to do everything well, but I recognize by learning disparate things and having to go through that phase of challenging, like, I don't think I can do this, and always being able to get through it because I had to because I had to teach. Mm. Or I had to learn something because I had to teach a kid how to do it, and I might not have known how to do it. I had to ask somebody. Mm. That process really showed me that, really, if you want to do something, you can mm. What level you end up doing it at depends on your talent, and it depends on your work ethic, mm. right? The work ethic, you can control. The talent, you might not be able to. Absolutely. So that's what I mean by your program to fail. If you never learn to try and get that drive, mm. the drive to keep going through a brick wall. Yeah. Like, you can't get that if you do something that's comfortable. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. And I wish there was a way to bottle it and sell it, you know? Like I wish there was a way, or even a way to... to operationalize it like how do you know that kid's gonna have that drive and then how do you create it because well, there's marshmallow tests right they they do this stamina testing mm-hmm. and show that most people are gonna take the marshmallow it's one where they put the marshmallow out in front of a kid they leave the room they tell the kid if you don't eat the marshmallow now we'll give you two so mm-hmm. all the kid has to do is just not eat the marshmallow and then you have some kids just do it you can't <laughs> help it just take the marshmallow and the other kid that waits and gets the two so what is that thing? And mm. Researchers are trying to figure out, well, what is that? How do we do it? And I know at KIPP, they tried to do it through character modeling. They mm. use character traits. Which traits lead to mm. the optimal happiness <laughs> quotient? That's one way to do it. But I think resilience, which is what that really is, is trained. It can be taught. Mm. And it can be taught by conditions that you put a person through and the way you support them through those conditions. When schools still tell children that you're a failure when you don't do well in this and that you have to repeat a grade as a standard, mm. I'm sorry, that does not send the message that there needs to be resilience. Because if there was a message of resilience, we would never fail a kid. Because mm. what we would say is, we're just going to keep trying differently in the next grade. 
right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what we do, right? Mm-hmm. We say you fail, so you have to do start all over. Yeah. Well, I have to start what? all over. I just need to get better at a few things. Mm-hmm. So how to bottle it? I think it's the, we have to change how we approach failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that we had somebody on the podcast that kind of talked about what would school look like if there were no grades and there were no mm-hmm. grades. So, like, there were no kindergarten, first grade, second grade, right. and there were no A through F. And, like, I don't know what that looks like. But also as being, like, a type A person, always been good at school, I like having my A's. And so me trying to undo that, undo that, like, that does not make me smart. Like, my ability right. to have these conversations with people, my ability to ask the right questions, my ability to kind of, like, figure out that stuff, that makes me smart. Mm-hmm. That makes me, like, ready to handle the next thing and the next thing. And so, but it's a, it's a conditioning thing. You always got a cookie or, like, the be- you're the best, you got your star on the board if I got an A or I got a good grade. So, like, how do I deconstruct that? And I think we have to, that's absolutely right, we have to do that. Um, so we're coming to a close. This was amazing. I, like, every time I have one of these conversations, I kind of just go back and I'm like, okay like that night I stayed up till 4am it was worth it (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I kind of want to end with um, do you have any questions or comments or suggestions or anything for us uh, to leave us with for going into the future I just think keep bringing people diverse backgrounds Mm. Um, keep adding your perspective I think it's helpful to be in a space of people who have a very different perspective, especially when it comes to age and mm. knowledge. Like, there's so much to know and to learn, and you think you might know a lot because you get older, but I actually find it's the opposite. I learn a lot more <laughs> from people that are younger than me because their perspective is always fresher. Mm. Like, I've already lived something. I've been scarred. I've been jaded by it. So just keep doing it and, and adding your voice to the collective. This mm. is a really important thing you're doing, and I and I... I'll do anything to help out. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, it was so great having you on. Everybody who's listening, you, he dropped some gems, so I need you guys to keep your li- have your listening ears on. Go back if you need to. And um, I'll talk to you next time.